Welcome to the Uncivilized Podcast. My name is Trevor Bohm and I will be your host. Every week or so, I try to get myself a fascinating human on the mic for you, someone who looks at the civilized world just like you do and says no thank you. Someone who wants to break some rules, to lead, and to bring their unique vision into the world. Someone for whom the status quo simply will not do. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I do. Please dive in. Hey folks, welcome back to the Uncivilized Podcast. This is Trevor Boehm, your host. For new listeners, welcome aboard. Welcome to the podcast. This is where I try to have interesting conversations with people who are absolutely fascinating, with folks who are living outside the box, with folks who have incredible stories, with folks who are doing really unique things with their lives, or in this case, a man who has overcome something just monumental. Uh, today's guest is a man named Eldra Jackson and a guy I have the utmost respect for. Uh, Eldra was put in the prison system at 19, given life plus 17 years, and after serving 24 of those, is now out leading circle work, leading men's work, teaching the youth how to be how to stay out of prison, and is doing just some of the most extraordinary healing work with men in the community that you could ever possibly imagine. This story is incredible. Uh, it's heartbreaking. It's heartwarming. It's it's all the things wrapped into one. It's everything you would expect to hear from a guy who's lived that life and has now come out the other side and is now thriving, like really thriving on the other side. Uh, I love this conversation. I was riveted throughout the whole thing and wish I could have had you know, three hours with Eldra. All right, guys. So without further ado... Uh, I'm not going to put an ad in the middle of this one. I want this conversation to go all the way through. So if you are interested in this kind of circle work, if you were interested in this kind of men's work, if you were interested in doing the deep dives that Eldra's talking about, please check out our initiation that we have coming up in August. It's a men's workshop led by myself, the great Dewey Freeman, the mystical Michael Gay, and you can find more information out about it at manuncivilized.com forward slash initiation dash co. Again, manuncivilized.com forward slash initiation dash co. All right, without further ado, here's Eldra. Eldra Jackson, welcome to the Uncivilized Podcast. This is such a pleasure. Uh, I have heard about you, known about you, and then I actually had a conversation uh, last week or two weeks ago with Raul Espinoza. And I was like, yeah, I'm interviewing this guy. His name's Elder Jackson. <laughs> he was like, all right, all right. He's a, he's a great man. You're going to have a great conversation. So welcome. Thank you for being here. Uh, for, for people who may not know you or a bit of your story, would you mind sharing with us? Actually, let's start with what do you do in the world now? Mm, thank you, Traver, number one, for having me here today. And what I do in the world now is I serve as executive director of a, a nonprofit organization that goes by the name of Inside Circle on the you know macro level. But what I do and how I show up in the world uh, as a part of Inside Circle is create spaces or support spaces that create the opportunity for what we refer to as system impacted people mm. to change from within, effectuate change from within. Okay. And and what that looks like is, you know, people now call them healing circles. Mm. And and for me, it's just people sitting around and, and, and telling the truth and sharing where they're hurt and sharing where their pains are and together finding ways to heal that. 
beautiful. There's so much to dive in here. Would you mind, because my listener flag popped up, system impacted people. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Okay. So at the, the outset and inception of Inside Circle, system impacted people referred to those folks that are in prison because that's where Inside Circle was born. It was born in Folsom Prison following a deadly race riot in 1996. I am on a mission myself to challenge the notion of who system impacted people are, because when people hear that, they think jails, prison, parole, probation, folks who are justice involved, every human being on the face of this planet is a part of some system, Mm. be it the political system, the economic system, the school system, a caste system. We're all a part of some system. Mm. Eldra, was this, you know, was eight-year-old Eldra like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to work with system-impacted people and create, facilitate healing circles. Or was some part of your life informative as to what you're doing now uh, with it? Well, eight-year-old Eldra did have dreams of becoming a lawyer and then a judge, but I became intimately involved with system-impacted people myself by being one of those folks. Okay. You know, the first time I was incarcerated, I was 14 years old. And by the time I was 19 years old, I had done enough in the community that the career criminal unit uh, uh, prosecuted me and, and sent me away for, for life plus 17 years. And I did 24 years of that life sentence in the California prison system. So wow. this is something that's very near and dear to my heart. Okay. Before we dive into the bigger picture of that, what was it like for you at 19 to... I guess, wake up that first morning and realize, okay, this is, this is home for a while. This is home for a long while. Uh, can you just walk us through some of the emotions and thoughts of like what runs through a man's being on that first morning? Mm. Well, for me, it was in the moment of the jury coming back with guilty verdicts. Okay. Because in California, for certain crimes, if a guilty verdict comes back, the sentence is automatic. There's no two ways about it. And so knowing what certain guilty verdicts meant, hearing guilty on those verdicts, sitting in that courtroom, I can remember my throat dropping down into the pit of my stomach and, and coming to the realization that my life was over. And in that instance, fear about not knowing what's next and what that's going to look like. What does my life now look like, you know, uh, inside of prison walls for the remainder of my life, locked away from, again, you know, due to my choices, locked away from family and friends and things of that nature. And how do I go into a place like this and and survive Mm. and find a way to thrive? And so in that instant, there's the fear there's the realization that my life is over. There's a sense of loss. There's a sense of powerness. And then a, a light switch flips. And it's like, okay, this is my life. Mm. So now how do I begin to set in motion the plans and the things that I need to make happen so that I can thrive in this environment? Yeah. Because fear is not something that's going to carry me through this. Being weak is not something that's going to carry me through this. So I began to develop an action plan on, on how I was going to uh, uh, be most effective in that environment, being somebody who at the time was 130 pounds soaking wet. Mm. And Andrew, would you mind sharing a little bit about what that plan was? Mm. 
Well, that plan was to establish myself as a dangerous individual amongst dangerous individuals. You know, folks who are in incarcerated environments often refer to them as shark tanks. And, you know, you have victims, you have uh, uh, perpetrators, you have prey and you have predators. And nowhere in my plans was me being prey a part of it. Nowhere in my plans was me being a victim part of it. So I took on the persona and the frame of mind and a way of being about exuding an air of violence, exuding an air of dangerousness and and demonstrating that if need be in very extreme ways out of fear so that I wouldn't have to do it as often Mm. so that the other predators would see that. And when they looked at me, they'd be like, well, you know, I think I might be able to get an easier win over here because that motherfucker right there is a bit crazy. Yeah. That's a hell of a decision to have to make at 19. Yeah. I mean, it's a hell of a decision to have to make at any age. Uh, I'm going to ask you two questions together because they kind of play off of each other. And I'm really curious, what was an unintended or what was what was hard or awful about prison that you didn't think would be? And if there was something that was beautiful or enlightening or joyful that you didn't anticipate either, what would that be? And you can start with either one. I think what was not, I think, I know what was difficult and I developed a way to get over that very quickly as a matter of survival. What was difficult was seeing people get killed up close and personal, get a a, a neck slit or get shot and act like it didn't happen. Because if you see it and you react, it puts your life in danger. If I see a man next to me get his throat slit and I respond or I react in a way, what I'm doing now is snitching. Mm. Now my life is in danger because I'm putting the people who just committed this act in danger. I'm alerting other folks to just what to what just happened. And now my life is in danger. Now I'm marked as a snitch. So seeing death up close like that and and pretending like you didn't see anything and not having a response to it was something that was difficult and i developed a a a callousness a way of 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 seeing other human beings where it you know just was what it was wow i imagine that requires an immense amount of shutting down your emotional system your cognitive system your spiritual system, if we can call it that, your consciousness of you're, you're almost at war or in a, a daily battle zone, but you're not allowed to react. Uh, before we get to the, the other question, how, how do you off-gas that? How do you process that? How do you work through that without it just building up to the point where you literally do explode or go insane? Hmm. Training the mind. I, I used to practice, you know, a great deal of mind training. And, and for me, how, how I dealt with that is, it's just the way, it, it just is what it is. That's the way that it is. This is the way that it has to be in this world, in this environment. This is my world. This is my environment. So this is normal. And so once I normalize it, then I can rationalize it. Okay. 
once it's something that's rational mm-hmm. to me and my mind can wrap itself around it like that, okay, well, shit, this is just the way it is. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. What would you say was an unintended positive if there was one? I don't want to sugarcoat your experience and have mm-hmm. it be, mm-hmm. you know, rainbows and kittens. Oh, yeah. A definite unintended uh, uh, and positive consequence or experience of being in prison is getting introduced to inside circle and and finding my own humanity, getting connected to my own humanity and learning how to love Mm. and seeing other folks that people view as hardened criminals and killers and convicts and whatever labels that they have for, you know, what society deems as our throwaways, finding and creating spaces of, of, of of healing Mm. for self and for one another and seeing men hold each other in a very tender and compassionate way that is rare Mm. in this world period but in prison in those spaces with those people in a maximum security prison that was nirvana for me yeah probably for the first time ever huh just seeing that level of connection wow yeah would you mind sharing a bit for people who've never heard of inside circle kind of the frame of it and how it came about and, and the work that they actually did more, not log- I guess, logistically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, how it, how it came about, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, there, there was a, a massive race riot in, in August of 1996 in New Folsom on B facility. And uh, unfortunately it was allowed, allowed to go on for about 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, People out here in the world think 40 minutes is a long time, you know, sitting on the causeway, sitting in traffic. And it is. And 40 minutes is an excruciating long time engaged in mortal combat, not knowing if you'll have to kill somebody, uh, uh, not knowing if somebody will kill you, fending off attackers and attacking people. That's a long time. Mm. Mortal, you know, combat sports go in three minute bursts. <laughs> They don't go for 40 minutes at one time, nonstop. Right. And, you know, so <clears throat> finally, you know, the administration was given permission to start using live rounds to end it. And that ended things pretty quickly. And there was a man named Pat Nolan, Patrick Nolan, big white guy from Canada. Went around after the lockdown was over, you know, to all of the different leaders of the gangs. He went around to the Bloods, the Crips the uh, Mexican mafia, Nuestra Familia, the Aryan Brotherhood, the BGF. And, and he challenged the leaders to come and, and participate in a poetry workshop he was trying to put together. And in, in that initial workshop, you had 13 people. And Patrick was able to get some assistance from folks on the side, uh, from on the outside, Dennis Marino, Rob Albee, Don Morrison, and support this effort that he was trying to uh, put together, which was bring what they call men's work Mm -hmm. into the prison. And Patrick had done some studying about it, and he, you know, was well convinced that this was something that was needed in this environment, in this place. And that's what it morphed into it. It, it. It evolved into what was known at the time as men's work. And they actually on the inside call it men's group. It's not called inside circle on, on the inside. Mm-hmm. And, and what that work is, is, is about challenging my thoughts and my beliefs about who I am and the, the paradigms that I have carried for, for so long. Where did they come from? Where were they born? Do they work for me? 
What has the impact been for myself and in the world for others? That is, you know, from a mental standpoint, that's the work that's done. Mm-hmm. On, on an experiential uh, level, it's about people just being with people. It's about humans being with humans and seeing one another and seeing where the hurt is, seeing where the pain is and, and, and acknowledging it and giving space for it to, to be felt, number one. Mm. Because in those places, feeling is, is, is not an option. You know, feeling is something that, you know, is seen as a weakness, can be viewed as a weakness. And so having permission to feel and, and get in touch with emotions and learning how to regulate them in a healthy way is, is, is a big part of, of what we do at Inside Circle. Mm. Thank you, sir. That's a beautiful explanation. I can't imagine a more impactful place for that work. Like I do it in the civilian population and it's, it's important. It's fathers, it's executives, it's attorneys, it's doctors, it's, it's people who have influence and families and people that they're mm-hmm. connected to. Uh, and yet I imagine that the deepest level of healing or what's not even the deepest, how necessary that work would be if we actually as a culture are interested in turning the tide of crime and recidivism and men. And like, do we really want to? Okay, then I feel like you guys are, are at the forefront of the root or, or, or a population that lives so heavily in the roots as opposed to mm-hmm. the branches. What got you, how did you get involved in it? Were you invited to a meeting or did you see something? Were you asked to facilitate in the beginning? And, and I, just for, for clarity, were you at Folsom when this was happening? Was this the creative? No, I was not at Folsom when this riot happened. When this happened, I was at uh, Solano on my way of getting kicked out of Solano on my way to Folsom. So by the time I got there, the group was up and running. I got there in 2000. Okay. I, I didn't yeah. know people could get kicked out of prison. Just you, you, can get, you can get kicked out of a, I've been kicked out of a few. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if to say like, well done, or I'm not sure what to do here. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's something that I don't necessarily put on my resume, but you know, upon <laughs> reflection, it's like, hmm, I was not a nice person. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which makes your story so much more impactful. So you get to Folsom. And then did you hear about this? Were you recruited into it? Were you curious? Would you mind walking us through a bit of that? Certainly, certainly. I, I, I heard about it when I got there. It was, <laughs> it was very famous. It was referred to around the yard by uh, uh, guards and prisoners alike as Hug-a-Thug. Uh, that, that was what it had been tagged. You just uh, found this, that's the name of the podcast, just so you know, I'm writing that down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was uh, referred to as hug thug and this is by folks who, uh, there was an air of mystery around mm-hmm. what was going on, because it, it's not, it, it's a closed group, it's not open to just anybody. The way that you get in is you're sponsored in, you're brought in by someone who is already a part of it. Okay. So if I'm bringing Traver into the group, I have a responsibility to identify why I think that you would benefit from this and what I think that you bring to the group. Mm. And then I have to nominate you in the group and give them an opportunity to say yay or nay. If they say, yeah, then it is incumbent upon me to then prep you Mm. around what the agreements are for the group. There's, there's no way for me to, you know, really explain to you what goes on, but I have to get you ready to go into this space. And so I, I was invited in a few times and and turned it down a few times. I you know felt like 
at that point in my life, I wasn't ready for it again. I didn't know what was going on in there, but I was seeking my own route mm-hmm. of uh, a personal inner, you know, redemption. But the folks that I, I knew and saw that were in the group and going on a regular basis were all men that I, I, I respected, mm-hmm. not because of their, you know, uh, gangster reputations or what they were doing on the prison yard, but the way that they carried themselves as men in that environment. And the conversations that we had as men, as human beings in that environment without all of the rigmarole that goes on in, in prison. And so, you know, one day I, I was asked uh, by uh, an associate of, my, of mine who, who was willing to uh, sponsor me. And, and I said, yes, try it on, see if it fits. If it does, it does. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Okay. And walking into that first meeting, were you anxious? Were you nervous? Were you in, intimidated, perhaps? And and I, I, was I wasn't I, I wasn't nervous or intimidated because again, most of the people in there I knew. Okay. Or was okay. it at the very? I thought that I I was familiar with them. Sure, I didn't get sure. to know them until I sat in mm-hmm. circle with them. Okay. So I thought I knew them. I was familiar with them, and so going into it, you know, there was a level of comfort because I was familiar with all of the people. And then when, you know, things started going and, 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 and an individual got into his work and I mm. saw, and I was able to feel what this was about. I felt like I was home. Oh, it, 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 it opened something up in me that I didn't know was inside of me. You know, it put me in touch with a part of myself that, you know, got locked away when I was seven years old. And, and at this time I was in my thirties. Wow. And so it was, uh, it was, it was, it was cathartic and it wasn't me out on the carpet doing my work. But what yeah. we say in this work is anytime an individual gets out on their carpet, they're doing my work for sure. Because there's some part of me that can identify with something that is happening through this work. And I immediately felt a kinship with it. Yeah. I, I love, I'm so glad you said that. Cause we say the same of one man does the work for everybody. And You'll see guys on the outside of the circle break down yeah. immediately, you know, someone's going to pop or, uh, or afterwards having a guy give some reflection and say, that's the work I don't think I could have done myself. Thank you so much for doing that. Can you give a tie? I don't want to break confidentiality or anything in that regard, but just for someone who's hearing this and goes, I have no idea what carpet work means or what it means to be a man in the middle. Would you walk us through perhaps, and without intimate detail, your first time on being called into the carpet and what that meant and what you were, what mm. you were required to do. Yeah. So for me, and, and, and I, I can speak about, you know, my experience, I'll, I'll never sure. speak about anybody else's. My experience was in being asked, <clears throat> you know, by a facilitator who I was mm. and, you know, my name, my, my answer was my name. You know, I, at the time I was going by the nickname Vegas, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Vegas. Okay. Okay. And, and underneath that, who are you? Well, I'm I'm a blood. Okay, and underneath that, oh shit, I'm a gangster. <laughs> okay, well, underneath that, who are you? Mm. And 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 just kept asking me these questions, just who are you? Yeah. And I didn't have an answer. I had, you know, a bunch of surface stuff that I could say that were titles and things that I had taken on myself or people had put on me that I had accepted, but I didn't know who the hell I was. I couldn't answer that question. And that was embarrassing as fuck to Mm -hmm. me. 
you know, in that circle with these men, with these people that I respected and in an environment where truth rules the day, where being open and being authentic. And I, I had to, you know, look at myself and, and, and come to the realization that for all of the book knowledge that I had and all of the life experience that I, you know, had up to that point, I didn't know who the hell I was. I didn't have a, a real solid answer for that. And, and so that was something that challenged me. I accepted the challenge to, to, to go within and begin to look at who I was and, and look at what the effect had been for floating through so much of my life, not understanding who I was and all of the things that I was responsible for from that state of unconsciousness. Mm-hmm making choices, thinking that I knew what the hell I was doing, Mm. but making choices from a very unconscious state of being. Yeah. That was very sobering and humbling for me. I bet. Aldra, how did that change the rest of your time in? Was it like, I can only imagine you have time, you have a lot of time, you have space. Was it a, a coming back to who you are? Was it a, like a filling up of an empty bucket? Was it a, like a, a switch of not enlightenment, but like, holy shit. Uh, like I found Jesus, but instead you found yourself. Would you mind just sharing a little bit about what was your time? Like once you could answer that question, mm. cause then you're still in prison. Yeah. But I imagine it's like, Hey, wait a minute. I figured it out. Someone let me out and go, go be in the world. Yeah. yeah. It, for, for, for me, I was, yeah, I was, I was still in physical prison but that that simple question set me on a path to my uh, spiritual, emotional, and mental freedom. Mm. Because I was in prison, I was incarcerated long before I ever knew what a pair of handcuffs felt like sure. because of the way that I thought, because of the way that I saw myself, and because of the way that I saw the world, because of the way that I moved through the world. You know, mm. being a slave to my fears, being imprisoned to my thoughts and my belief system. That was something that I was before I ever, you know, stepped inside of a physical prison. So the rest of my time following stepping into and embracing that freedom was, it was, it was peaceful. Wow. That set me on a path to being free in prison. I was free. I, I started going to group. I was 14 years into my sentence. I did another 10 years before I was paroled. And, and that 10 years were, uh, you know, and, and, and I say this with an asterisk because I'm married. I got a, a beautiful wife, Holly. I got two beautiful kids. That was some of the most beautiful time for me on the face of this planet because everything and every day was brand new. And I was just in love with being in love. I was in love with being human and the experience and the emotions, no matter what they were, they didn't have to be joy. I was in love with feeling pain. I was in love with being sad, just being connected to the fullness of what is possible in this human experience was, 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 it was fucking amazing. What a dichotomy, right? What a cliche almost that you have to in the least free place on earth, you find the most freedom. What, what an extraordinary story, sir. Tell me about coming out, if you would. Was it, okay, this is the work I'm going to do. I know I have a path. 
day one, morning one, like I'm, I'm on it. I'm up in the morning. I figured it out. I want to bring this work to other people. I want to, I want to work in the prison system or was there a, a harder transition when you did come out? Mm. Well, I, I, I knew that I wanted to continue this work. Number one for myself, I do this work for me. I don't do this for other folks, other folks, claim they get some benefit of it from it. That's just ancillary. Okay, fine. Kudos to them. But I do this for me. I have to do this. This is a way of of life for me. This Mm -hmm. is a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I wanted to share this lifestyle with young people and try to serve as an example Mm -hmm. for young people on the front end so that they didn't have to experience this the way that I did in a prison chapel after they've already flushed their life down the toilet. Uh, So I knew that in some capacity, I wanted to volunteer in some way, be of service in that way. I didn't know necessarily what it looked like. And that is something that to a man, every person I've ever sat with inside wants that energy out here in the world, wants to be able to affect the world in that way to bring that healing and, and empower, you know, young folks or, or people who may be in danger of experiencing some of the things that they have to, 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 to recognize that they have the power to author a different mm-hmm. outcome for themselves. Mm-hmm. We're not trapped into something. Your life doesn't have to be like this because you're from here. Right. So coming out, I didn't know what that would look like. I just knew that I wanted to be productive. I wanted to work. I wanted to be with my family and I didn't want to go back to prison. Mm. That was the plan. Right. And uh, I got connected with the, uh, the leadership of the nonprofit Inside Circle. You know, when I got out, they reached out. And uh, there, there's actually a documentary that was filmed. It's called The Work. And it was filmed while I was still in Folsom at one of the last uh, trainings, weekend trainings that I did. And uh, I was asked to go to the uh, uh, the initial screening at South by Southwest. And I, I got involved with some other uh, events, facilitating some circles out here on the outside. And then more of us began to come home. Mm. There, There's a, a core group of us that are referred to as the fire keepers, myself, Manny Ruiz, Aaron Burris, and Rick Meisner, that the uh, brain trust at the time turned over the reins of the organization to us and let us know that it was always a vision of theirs for the men on the inside, if and when they ever came home, to take the reins and and take Mm -hmm. this on, you know, to the next level, to the next Mm -hmm. phase of this. And, And that's where we're at today. Beautiful. Would you mind sharing a little bit of just what that phase looks like before we dive into men, masculinity, some of the challenges that men are having and how we can correct them. What does Inside Circle now do organizationally? Hmm. So now organizationally, what we do is, of course, our our, our, our genesis and, and our uh, uh, ground zero is, is prison, going inside a prison and supporting the folks in there. So where we were in one prison, Folsom, we're now in Folsom, we're in the California Medical Facility, we are in Jamestown. We're in San Quentin. We are soon to be in, in Solano prison. I got one of the prisons I got kicked out of. We are, we do work. We hold circles at Archbishop Hannah High School, which is an alternative high school in Sonoma County. Uh, we go into uh, 
what they call now the DJJ, Division of Juvenile Justice, which is uh, a young people's prison here in California. We have a huge initiative uh, on the other side of the country in uh, New Jersey, the Juvenile Justice Commission. We go inside and sit with young people in circle there. We have what's called YAY, the Young Adult Empowerment Program. So as those young people cycle out of the system, we remain connected with them. They continue to sit in circle uh, with us. We work with them around financial literacy, job preparedness, things of that nature. We just opened our first uh, healing home in cooperation with the Annie E. Casey Foundation, uh, Homeboy Industries, and the National Association for the Advancement of Returning Citizens, mm. which is a home for young people as they parole. Oftentimes, unfortunately, they're going back to the same toxic neighborhoods and homes and environments and people that contributed to the de decision-making processes that they had. So what we have found is if we can put them in a different environment mm. where they don't have to worry about who's hunting me and who I have to hunt, where they know where the next meal is coming from, where they have love and support in the household, where they have a bed and a room that is their own, they have the opportunity to thrive. Mm -hmm. And so just a month and a half ago, we opened that first home and, and the goal is to you know have one of those at least in every state around the country. We do this work now in corporate environments. We're trying to uh, uh, contribute to changing the way that business leaders see themselves and do business. Mm. And we do outside circle events where you know anyone is 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 welcome. You know I, I talked about this being born out of the men's movement, but mm. this is women's work as well. This is people work. Sure, you know there are. Uh, 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 sister organizations, Women Within. We work with some of their facilitators, her. We do events that are all inclusive. Anybody who identifies as a human and, and, and who wants to connect with other human beings, we sit in circle with them. Ah, oh, beautiful. Bless you. I mean that. This is, it's, it's absolutely brilliant work and it's so necessary. So thank you. Yes, sir. Elder, let's talk about men. Let's talk about masculinity. Uh, we, we talked before the call started that this is being recorded, you know, end of May, and there was just another big shooting here in the U.S. where the young man went into an elementary school. I'm not going to ask you how we solve this in, mm -hmm. in the next 12 minutes. Uh, what do you see from your perspective going on with men, going on with young men, going on with violence? And we'll speak specifically here in America. Mm -hmm. What do you see? And then what are some of the steps that we can start to enact as a culture, as a group, no matter what color we are, no matter what race, no matter socioeconomic, just where, where would you stay? If I gave you Merlin's magic wand, mm -hmm. what, would, what would be some of your first steps? So first, what do you see? And then what are some steps? Okay. What I see is one of the taglines we have at Inside Circle is uh, hurt people, hurt people. So what, what I see is a lot of hurt people bouncing around in the world, like uh, for those of you who are old enough to remember them, pinballs in a machine. And that is something that until we find a way collectively to acknowledge that fact, it's just going to continue. Hurt people hurt people. That's a fact. When I was a person who was hurting and I was living from my wounds and coming from that place, 
The only thing that I knew how to do was trade pain for pain and make certain that other people hurt so that I didn't have to feel hurt. That's what I see. That's what my experience teaches me and shows me. Uh, if I had Mer Merlin's magic wand, one of the first things that would happen was everybody would be offered, not be forced, everybody would be offered the opportunity to sit in circle. I don't know if that's the answer. I know it works for me. I have seen the places that it does work. I have seen it work in places where, again, people have put what we as a society deem to be the worst of the worst. People that we throw away, we turn the lights off, we turn our back and we go on about our lives. I have seen the magic work in those places where people, where I, a career and habitual criminal was able to connect with the, the, the truth of my humanity, connect with the light that exists within me and begin from that place to see the light that exists within everybody else. Because until I can recognize the light in Traver, how can I respect Traver? How can I honor Traver? How can I be in real authentic relationship with you and truly want to see the best for you? If I don't see that in you, you're an object. When you're an object, I have othered you. That goes back to that mindset. How do I see somebody get their wig split and act like it never happened? It's because you're an object. What I see is, is, is we have an environment culturally where it's very easily to look at other humans as objects. So if I do something to an object, that's very different than doing something to another human being. It goes back to that whole mindset and rationale and making something acceptable within myself. We got people running around going up, you know, we just had this dude go and do this 18 years old, went into school, you know, killed a bunch of second, third and fourth graders. And I don't know what was going on in his mind. I'm, I'm, I'm not smart enough to project what he may have been thinking or what the motive would have been. But I know that one of the things that we have, you know, culturally today, and this is not to uh, uh, villainize video games or anything like that. We got video games that they call a uh, uh, first shooter, first shooter perspectives. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in that, I have the ability to practice killing people, but they're not real. They're not real people. They're objects. And so it's normal and it's rational for me to see bodies dropping and blood all over the place. And it means nothing because all I got to do is push restart. We can't go back to yesterday and push restart and everybody pops up and mm -hmm. goes back to life. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the symptom. I don't know if that is, is, is the reason, but I know we have a lot of factors that we can begin to look at yeah. that contribute, contribute to objectifying each other. Yeah. I agree. And I, I don't think it's a single factor. I think one of the challenges we're facing is that particular groups find a single factor and they go all in on that one single factor. And, mm -hmm. and then that puts them at odds with someone who has the opposite other single yes. factor. And yeah. then we don't meet in the middle and there isn't a, well, maybe it's a little bit of everything here. And, and culturally we are, we are bankrupt and uh, spiritually, we are bankrupt, and it, it feels like 
We're going to have two weeks of, you know, thoughts and prayers for Texas. And then Will Smith's going to slap someone at the Oscars. And we're, we're going to be all in on that. And, and then mm-hmm. two weeks later, something else is going to happen. We're going to be all in on that. And yet I would love for men listening to this to say some of this is where it is incumbent upon us to take responsibility and say, okay, I can speak to you, Elder, because you look like me. You sound like me. You have shoulders like I do. I, you, we think we're, we're men. We, we can connect on that level. If I can't, if I know nothing else about your life, I can say he's a man. He's lived some part of his life that's similar to mine. Mm-hmm. When you get around young men, especially, what is the message that you're bringing to them? And how do you do it in a way that it lands for them? And they're not just like, ah, great. There's listen to this old guy. He doesn't yeah. get me. Yeah. How do you speak specifically to the young men? Because I think the message is also, I will hear it as someone who's 46, because it's going to speak to a part of me that probably wasn't spoken to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When 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 I'm speaking to, to to younger folk and old folk alike, what 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 I key in on is uh, I, I always start with the question, who do you want to be? Mm-hmm. And and once people start having that discussion, OK, then the next question is, OK, what does it take or what steps do you need to implement to be that person? And, and, and when we start, you know, asking and answering those sorts of things, then it goes off into, okay, where are you not being that? And then start the, I start to give examples because from the perspective of a man, look, when we start having these conversations about masculinity, especially in this day in LK, toxic masculinity, you get folks that shut down. Uh, they think that you're talking about the pussification of manhood and emasculating folks and cutting their ball, all of these sorts of things, they immediately get defensive. That ain't where I'm coming from. Masculinity is not toxic. Femininity is not toxic. Water can be toxic. Mm -hmm. You can drink too much water and die. There can be aspects Mm -hmm. of masculinity that can be toxic. There can be uh, 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 paradigms of thinking that can be toxic. And I know for a fact, because I was one of those cats. And so I, I talked to these young dudes about, about fear. You know, when was the last time you went to the store at, at midnight and you were walking through the parking lot and, and, and going to your car and you saw a white panel van and you feared that somebody might snatch you into that van and cart you off somewhere and put you in a drum and ship you off to Saudi Arabia or somewhere. When was the last time you had those thoughts? Never. Never. When was the last time you were walking down the street and you were concerned that people were looking at you in a way that made you feel unsafe because of uh, 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 them wanting to get up underneath your clothes? When have you ever felt that? Never. When have you ever gone to a club or been at a social event or something like that and you got up to go to the bathroom and came back and looked at your drink and was like, yeah, I'm not drinking that. I need another drink. Not a (laughs) once. So see, these are things that we got to start thinking about. I got to start thinking about because this is a reality for women. I got a wife, you know, sisters, aunties, cousins, things like that. This is reality for them. This is normal for them. These are things that should not be normal, just like it shouldn't be normal for me to see somebody get their brains blown out and fall right next to me. And I keep stepping like nothing happened. That's not fucking normal. Mm -hmm. 
So until we start having these discussions about how do I personally contribute to that being something that is normal, it's going to continue to be. And that's how we have these discussions with these young folks. What is their reaction to them? The reaction is, wow, I never thought about it like that. Yeah. No, you didn't because you don't have to, Mm. but we have to. And then we can get off into how I show up as a man. You know, you talk about the shoulders, you talk about the energy, you talk about the voice. There's a way that I can show up and express myself with other men that is, you know, it's just fine. And I can show up that way with women and I don't mean anything by it, but the energy contributes because of the way our society is, because of the things that we rationalize. Women may not feel safe. Mm -hmm. They might not say anything, but they may not feel safe. Mm -hmm. And it's not because necessarily of something uh, I have any ill intent or ill will. It just is. Do I have a responsibility to look at that and, 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 and recognize, you know, the energy that I bring and how I show up? You damn skippy I do. Because I'm the one that's holding that energy. I'm the one that's wielding that energy. So there's a responsibility that comes with that. Yeah. I'll even project that men may be uncomfortable with it. Some men. There are some men who are, yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. And that's our responsibility as well. Just just to start asking the questions of how do I show up in spaces? How do I show up in public? How do I show up in my intimate relationships, especially where so much of our our violence takes place or our sexual violence takes place. Mm-hmm. And that's not about, again, I'm not here. It's not about making anybody wrong or making one greater than the other. It's about awareness mm. and me being situationally aware. Yeah. That's all. That's all. Who do I want to be? How do I want to show up? What do I want my impact to be? That's all about me. That's not about other people. That's all about me being responsible for me. Now, if I really feel congruent with how I'm showing up and who I'm being and somebody else still has some issues, well, maybe they need to go look at their stuff. All I can control is how I show up. Sure. Eldred, do you see a a different challenge with a younger generation and perhaps our generation? Or is it the same sort of sweeping? And I'm talking about men specifically. Mm -hmm. Or do you see a different flavor? with different, demog- different demographics of men, or we could even go with black men versus white men or Asian men versus Hispanic men or young men versus old men, or do you see a universal that all men can key into and, and, and feel into, or, or would you say that there's more specifics? In my experience, uh, teaches me that it's universal. It, 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 it's yeah, universal. I, I, I sit with, uh, with, with a lot of executives now, you know, the stereotypical wasp Mm -hmm. and they are at the outset, very disconnected. You know, they want to, you know, we go to, you know, what just recently happened in Buffalo and, and, and they want to be a part and they want to, you know, be a part of the solution. And what do I do? I can't understand it. I'm not connected to what the people need. They can't tap into their empathy. Mm -hmm. Okay. I I, I get that. I understand. And what I'm hearing you say is that you are not connected to your feelings. Mm -hmm. 
And so, you know, I'll ask them, what does it feel like to be, you know, a successful businessman in this era of Me Too? Mm. What does it feel like to, to, to be, you know, villainized and criminalized because you're successful and because of the color of your skin and because of uh, uh, what you look like and everything that you say, everything that comes out of your mouth, somebody's looking to run you out of the human race, potentially. What's that feel like? Mm. And then once they can connect to that feeling and get off into that, then I hit them with, well, you know, that's the nigga experience here in this country. Mm. So the same thing you need is the same thing every nigga in this country needs. There's no difference. There's no difference. The story is what we use to bring that separation. The story is what I hold on to to make me unique and separate from Traver. Mm -hmm. However, the emotion that is underneath, what I feel underneath, what Trevor feels underneath is the exact same thing. Yeah. I need what you need and you need what I need. Yeah. That's universal. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that. I'll try, I have to, I'm just curious. I was going to say, I have to ask you, I'm projecting that you have faith in men. <laughs> And faith oh, in the yeah. path that we're going is, would you share a little bit about just your faith in the direction that we're going? Because there are days I got to tell you, man, when working with guys and go, God, we're, we're, it's, dude, it's happening. I'll walk out of a workshop and go, wow, 30 guys are going to be completely different fathers. And I'll wake up and, and what do you know? Someone walked into an elementary school and, and murdered 18 kids. And I go, mm -hmm. God fucking damn it. Uh, we've actually, we're not moving forward. We're taking steps back. I guess, how do you navigate faith in this regard, specifically around the, the, the direction we're going as men? Mm. The faith that I have in, in where we're going as men and, and who we can be as men is, uh, shit, experiential, man. Right now, we're having this conversation. And people will listen to this. People are listening to this right now. And so the fact that people are willing to listen to this sort of stuff, people are willing to engage in these sorts of conversations that 5, 10, 15 years ago were completely taboo, gives me faith that we're heading in a different direction and the potential of what can be. When we're not having these conversations is when my faith will begin to dwindle. When mm -hmm. people are not open and willing to begin to step in and have these hard conversations because everybody's not going to have these conversations, right? Everybody has <laughs> never been in throughout history, all in on everything. All we need is a critical mass. All we need is people who are, have some sort of influence. And if that influence, if that sphere of influence is only over the dominion of self, then so be the case. But we have folks who have broad spheres of influence who are now beginning to be open to these sorts of conversations that, you know, really reinforces my faith in, in, in us as men and us as humans. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. I, pre I appreciate that. I have a personal question for you. It's just a little blip one before I ask sure. people where they can get in touch with you and how can they can follow, follow your work. Do you ever dream that you're back in prison? No, I don't. And, and I know a lot of people who do, I, I, I don't. And, yeah. and, and to be honest with you, I, I don't dream of I. Okay. I, I really, that is something that got cut off. Mm. I cut it off either consciously or subconsciously decades ago. 
because dreams for me were something that could be uh, taken away. And so living the life that I was living and, and being in the places that I was in, limiting the things that someone else could take from me was, Mm -hmm. was very prudent. Mm -hmm. And I have not either focused on or figured out how to turn my, my dream machine back on. Okay. That's fair. Thank you for that. I was just curious. And I guess I will throw one, one last one in. Do you ever take a look at the entirety of your life and just think, holy crap, this has been a ride that this is a unique set of you know, you're not like, well, at 18, I married my high school sweetheart and we got the house and the picket fence and, you know, I've made it to middle management and, you know, the kids graduated and here I am fishing. And, you know, it's, it's been a, it's been a wild, wild run, uh, but you've actually lived this, you've lived so many lives. I imagine, do you ever, does it ever overwhelm you or do you ever even contemplate that? I, I don't, I, I really don't because I really try, I'm not always successful. I really try to focus on the present. And again, you know, this work teaches me that a lot of fear is based on attachment to the present. Mm. I mean, not the present, but attachment to the past, things that have happened and the future, things that may happen Mm -hmm. that I have no control over. Both of those things are things I don't have any control over. So I try to be more present based than than, than past or or, or future based. So, no, I, I, I don't really. Fair enough. Elder Jackson, where can people get more of Inside Circle? I know you work with All Kings or anywhere else that people can find you or contact you or or get in touch with you or where are you hanging out these days? InsideCircle.org. You can you can find me. You can find out more <clears throat> about the, uh, the, the organization. Uh, we, we have a Facebook page, Instagram, Twitter, all of that social media stuff. Somebody handles it. I don't, I don't have the time for it, but we're on it. (laughs) That's fair enough. (laughs) Thank you so much, sir, for your time, for your wisdom, for your your generosity today, but most importantly, man-to-man for the work that you're doing in the world and the work that you are doing for, for men specifically, but mostly for humans in general. You are an extraordinary person and it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Thank you very much, sir. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Keep doing the good work that you're doing and getting the word out. Thank you, sir. This is Traver Bohm signing off on another episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this, please give us a share. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And if you're interested in getting a hold of my book, Man Uncivilized, whether you're a man or a woman, please go to www.manuncivilized.com forward slash the book and get reading.